How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 358 of X Lapsed, where, uh, well, stop me if you heard this one before. Um, boy, we've got too many books. Um, you know, I, I feel like a broken record here, but uh, this line is bloated, and uh, certain days it's a little bit more difficult to, I don't know, get excited about uh, discussing some of these books. I mean, that's been something from the very start, but now it feels especially in my face. Um, I don't know if it's a mix of just the fact that I'm not really holding myself to a daily grind anymore, so if there's a book I really don't feel like discussing, I can find reasons to push it off, or I'm not as uh, inclined to you know push through, which is sort of the case today. Um, also, um, I feel like the quality and relevancy levels of the books we have now are just so wildly inconsistent where some of the books we cover are just wonderful and they feel like they matter and they really add to the story and the lore and then we have books like the supposed flagship that feel like kind of a holdover from a previous era and an era that nobody's very interested in dealing with it's unfortunate uh, because there are some fun ideas here just the execution it feels like something that should have happened a long time ago, and uh, instead it's happening now. So how about I quit wasting uh, any more of your time? I mean, I'm going to be wasting plenty of your time today as it is. I'll do my best to mitigate that, but uh, let's get into today's issue, which is X-Men Volume 6, number 11. Had a July 2022 cover date. The story's called A Busted Hand, written by Jerry Duggan with art by Pepe Larraz, colors Marty Gracia. Letters VCs Clayton Cowles, designs by Muller and Bowen. Edits Amaro White Sabolski, cover price $4. This one went on sale May the 11th of 2022. And of course, that is allegedly May 11th. Who, who could even say? Who could even remember that long ago? Anyway, we open with our old friend, the mostly blank quote page. And it's, uh, it's a little uh, funny haha from Rocket Raccoon, which, uh, okay. Uh, the story officially begins with a uh, mojo. Um, Mojo is discussing how important gambling and game world are to his new Mojo World Plus service. <laughs> Get it? Yeah. Uh, whatever happened to Headshot TV? You know, or whatever the hell that was called over in X Factor. You know, Mojo's other, you know, endeavors here. I'm guessing Duggan never read any of it, so uh, this is probably all new to us. Anyway, the gimmick here is that Mojo had eyes on game world. But Cordyceps Jones' fungal hoodoo infected all of his movers and shakers, so Cordyceps is kind of running the show. And so, it's in Mojo's best interest to put Game World into the crosshairs of the Earth, and, well, vice versa. 
since, of course, that's where all the heroes live. So if, if he can make Earth kind of take notice of Game World, well, maybe they'll just take care of it for him. Now, here's a question. Now, I know the timelines in this, you know, Hox Pox and Beyond era is uh, nebulous at best, but when does this scene happen? I think the idea here is that this scene happens before this volume kicks off because the volume kicks off, of course, with this game world concept and it becoming, you know, a uh, known commodity to uh, the people and heroes of Earth. But if we're actually to look at the art here, uh, Mojo is surrounded by like those uh, those big old, you know, 500 pound TVs that we used to have in our living rooms. It's just all these TV screens here and has different images on each one. And one of them has Captain Krakoa on it. And we know Captain Krakoa wouldn't exist until, like, issue 6 or 7, so... Is this before the volume started? Is this after, you know, the first arc? Or how could we say we're still in the first arc? I I know I ask these questions a lot, but, I'm, I mean, does anybody care? Does anybody even look at these things before they go to the printer? I, I don't know. Anyway, from here, we shift scenes to Game World, where the X-Ladies arrive with a lump of Mysterium. Now, they're all wearing their Carnation Abominations from the first Hellfire Gala, it might be worth noting. Um, and, of course, those are naturally slathered in X's, so I couldn't tell you if they're supposed to be undercover or not. In any event, uh, they are here to, uh, you know, have a goo. Now, double-page spread of Roll Call and Cred, our characters include Wolverine, that's uh, Laura, X-23, Rogue, Marvel Girl, remember that they, they say Marvel Girl here, uh, Dr. Stasis, Sunfire, Captain Krakoa, Sink, and Cordyceps Jones. Back to comics, and we get a little bit more Waka Waka from Rocket. And it's just a quick and dirty about Game World that Rocket apparently shared with Gambit during an extra-legal poker game. An extra-legal poker game. In uh, Gambit's very own, quote, extra-legal gambling den inside the treehouse. Did did Remy join the X-Men off-panel? I thought he was in Otherworld right now. I mean, does he have a room? Why does he have a room at the treehouse? I, I don't know. I guess we needed it for this hilarious scene. Back to Game World, where the X-Ladies all break off to try and get a better feel and look for the place here. Polaris is instantly distracted at the sight of a weird, flowy gown. Jean kvetches a bit about capitalism because... Ew, gross, capitalism. A good thing the people creating this book aren't, you know, cashing checks from Disney or anything, right? That'd be, that would almost make them seem like hypocrites. Well, better a hypocrite than a capitalist, I guess. I don't know. Uh, you know, I, I gotta ask this question here. Is everybody enjoying their Universal Comics coverage? Because naturally, we get these books for free, right? There's no, this isn't a, you know, product that we spend money on or anything, right? Anyway, to the treehouse, where the Avengers are visiting and chatting up Sunfire who is apparently still part of the cast of this book. Iron Man and Captain Marvel are curious about the increased alien attacks on Earth, which I think we're supposed to deduce is something we can blame on Game World, even though, I mean, this is the Marvel Universe where alien attacks have been happening every hour on the hour for the past several decades. I, okay, we'll play along. Uh, they also seem like they're trying to maybe turn Sunfire against the rest of the team by suggesting that they're all off doing important things while he's being left behind to play goalie. And Ashiro, well, he kind of flips the script on him. He takes this as a compliment, stating that the goalie is the most important position on the team. We shift scenes to the sewers, where Sink and Captain Krakoa are trying to track down Dr. Stasis's secret lab, or whatever. Uh, they're actually listening in on uh, the Avengers chatting up Sunfire, 
and Scott mistakenly assumes that the quote-unquote increased alien attacks on Earth are due to the mutants taking over Mars Araco. And of course, we know the X-Men and the Avengers are sort of on a collision course that might, that might you know, come into the story there. Anyway, the fellas split up to cover more ground in the uh, subterranean depths. Back to Game World, where Laura is attacked by Cordyceps Jones. He spews funguses at her, she pukes, and goes prone. So um, I guess she's a lot easier to take out than uh, her predecessor. Or I guess Wolverine gets taken out a lot too, who knows. Back to the sewers. Now, Sink happens across Bornin, who, if you remember, is Dr. Stasis's big cat friend. Now, Bornin is currently burning a bunch of bodies. Sink claims that he uh, tracked Bornin down by using Laura's enhanced senses that, he, you know, he borrows, you know, he borrows mutant powers, right? And uh, I guess he still has Laura's. I, I worry that this could make him uh, a little bit more powerful than a character would need to be, but uh, I guess we'll play along for now. He then pops his claws... Um, which I didn't think was a stealable power, per se, but it makes for a neat visual. Uh, it gives us a little cringy dialogue, but, I mean, it, it, it's, it's a cool visual, so we'll let it go. As for the sort of cringy dialogue here, he informs Bornin and us that he's been playing Wolverine longer than anybody alive because of all the vault crap. You know, he's hundreds and hundreds of years of pretending he's Wolverine, I guess. It's worth noting that Everett has Laura's two-claws motif, which... I don't want to be that guy, but she actually had three claws on her wrist, right? It's just that they surgically moved one to her foot. So I guess we can assume that surgical modifications are copyable mutant powers now? Or maybe, you know, when Laura died and came back and she had the two claws and the one claw on her talon, they, maybe that's just like her new normal? I, I don't know. Anyway, back to Game World. Polaris debuts her new gown. I hope she didn't pay money for that because that would be... Well, I can't even say the word. Um, anyway, we also see that there are robot slot machines who are literally spitting coins all over the place. These um, slot machines are really a pretty cool visual here. It's uh, it's like little robot women who are spitting literally out the mouth, spitting coins. And that's something I got to say here. Uh, this entire book is full of good visuals here. It's very, very pretty. Uh uh, Laraz and Gracia just, just nailed it. They always do. They always do. And I gotta say that crippling completionism aside, the amazing art in this book is the only reason why it should occupy any space in your home. Anyway, we got Jean here, and she uh, confronts all the gamblers. And she says that... It's weird. She proclaims that she used to be called Marvel Girl. And by used to be, I, I mean as recently as this very issue's roll call page. Uh, but now she's just Jean Grey. She also says that the Phoenix couldn't control her. So I guess that's the version of events we're going with today. I mean, they really love to play this one fast and loose, depending on the story and the proclamation that they're trying to deliver, right? Sometimes the, the Phoenix was able to. Sometimes the Phoenix wasn't able to. It's uh, It really just depends on, well, whether or not uh, the person writing the page has read any X-Men comics before 2019, which... Uh, Seems to be very few. Anyway, Jean uses her uh, TK to break some kingpin-looking guy's fingers before being confronted by uh, Laura the Clicker, which is a, that's a Last of Us reference. Uh, a lot of cordyceps stuff in there, and it uh, resembles it a little bit here. Anyway, Laura has been taken over by cordyceps because uh, the last box on our current year Marvel bingo card is Hero on Hero Violence. Info page. It's a... Uh, 
letter from Dr. Stasis to the Oblivion Institute. Okay, um, back to comics, where Scott has finally happened across Stasis's lab, or whatever. Scott has changed from his Captain Krakoa gear into his Cyclops gear, by the way. And he calls out Stasis. He, like, announces that he's there. He's like, hey, Stasis, I'm here. And Stasis corrects him, saying it's Dr. Stasis. Scott didn't call him Mr. or anything. He just said Stasis. I, I don't know. Anyway, they fight for a bit. Scott winds up blasting Stasis's helmet clean off his head, revealing the face underneath to be... Mr. Sinister. Hmm. Well, Mr. Sinister only with a black club on his forehead instead of the usual red diamond, so... Are we to assume that Sinister's entire gimmick is playing card-related now? Did somebody see the diamond and be like, ooh, playing card... I mean, this really, really stinks of some Jagoff getting cute upon realizing that, you know, X is also the Roman numeral for ten. Let's hope that that's not the direction we're headed here with Sinister here. I don't want... Sinister's whole thing to be devolved into just, oh, this, these are playing cards, these are different suits. Especially when, I mean, we know that Apocalypse put that thing there. Oh, okay, never mind, never mind. I mean, that was pre-2019, and we know that doesn't matter. Anyway, that's where we leave it. Next episode is, uh, why I tell you, this is one of the reasons why I really miss the Daily Grind, and also... I'm equally happy that it isn't there anymore because next episode we're talking about Knights of X. That's like breaking through one brick wall only to see another brick wall right behind it. Now, this is usually our talking time segment here where I talk a little bit about the issue we discussed, but uh, I promised at the beginning I wasn't going to waste as much of your time as I usually do, and uh, I really don't have much to say. You know, we talk about, like, uh, Ben Percy issues as being... Issues that, uh, I should, I don't want to say we, but I personally enjoy, but at the end of the day, there isn't a whole lot to say about it. This is kind of like that, but different. <laughs> this is an issue I really didn't enjoy, and yet I still don't have anything really, uh, pertinent or relevant to say about it. I feel like this entire first 12 issues of X-Men Volume 6, I'm prepared to just wipe them completely off the board and... Hopefully go into this series with fresh eyes with uh, issue 13 or whatever issue will be the first with, you know, the new post-second Hellfire Gala team. Because I've said it before, anytime we've talked about this book, I always lament the poor timing of it. This feels like a relic of a past era, and it's an era that the rest of the line has moved on from. It's hard for me to really blame that on any particular creator, except for the one who left, who abandoned the team, right? And he's not here anymore, so... What are you going to do? Now, that, of course, that's not to say if this book launched with all the other launches, it would be a lot better because, I mean, there is still a fair amount of cringe here. It doesn't quite reach the depths of X-Men Green, but it's certainly not wonderful, and it's not really something I'd uh, recommend anybody go out of their way to track down, pay for, and, uh, and read. But hopefully we only have an issue or two more of this sort of relic throwback arc here, and then maybe we'll hit the ground running, especially with the Judgment Day thing happening. Maybe all the books will get on the same page at that point. Um, I'm trying to be optimistic. <laughs> it's just that this line is so ridiculously bloated. There's too many books, and so many of them just don't matter. A funny thing about the Duggan books is uh, we can usually take a character out of them, 
and relate them to things that are going on like in the comic book industry and think that they'd be very annoyed at what they see here. When we did X-Men Green, I was complaining about like all the ridiculous amounts of uh, reprints, second, third, fourth, fifth printings of the Peach Momoko stuff that you could still find like metric tons of at every comic store in the country. Yet we we keep going back to these extra printings here. We're killing all these trees. And it's like, what would Nature Girl say? She wouldn't like this. And here we got Gene bellyaching about capitalism, and yet they announce like there are new books being added to this line almost every single month. It's like, well, uh, hmm, okay. Kind of makes you wonder what Gene might think if she were to happen across an issue of Marvel previews. Maybe I should pitch that as a as an installment of X Men Unlimited. We'll, we'll see. We'll put that in the good idea pile for now and uh, move on to the mailbag. But uh, first, one more thing: uh, the art is just phenomenal. It makes the book feel like an event, even though I mean the story does not carry that weight. But uh, the art is really something to enjoy. But with all that said, let's hop into the mailbag. Here we got a couple of letters to discuss. First, we got one from Evan, who's talking about X-Men Red number 1. Now, Evan says, I enjoyed X-Men Red number 1 as well. A lot of good folks in the cast, and I like the idea of competing teams. I'm looking forward to Ewing writing Sunspot again, as he did in New Avengers, Volume 874, and also U.S. Avengers. I like how Sunspot in the Avengers titles was a capable, sometimes underestimated leader. It sure beats being X-Corp wallpaper, that's for sure. Even though the Marauders are in space, I doubt we'll see them stop by Arako, given Storm's updated hairstyle. There's just too much potential trauma there for Call Me Kate. And uh, yes, that is very, very true here. Um, a lot of good points in this message here. I also enjoyed uh, Sunspot and, and Cannonball as well in the Avengers titles during, uh, I think it was the end of Hickman's run over there. It was a... Uh, was it Avengers World where they first started to like show up? And then they, of course, went into... or. Sunspot, at least, went into new and uh, U.S. Avengers. I think he was using the mantle of uh, Citizen V, even, in uh, U.S. Avengers. But uh, definitely, it's nice to see Sunspot as something a little bit more. Because when we started uh, New Mutants post-Hoxbox, it felt like he was going to be a pretty big part of that book. And he was for the first arc... And then he was kind of just put on Chandelar to, you know, live with Sam and uh, Smasher. It's like, did we just didn't really hear from him uh, after that. Which was a little jarring, since he was kind of our point-of-view character for that first arc. He was like our narrator. He was basically the guy there, right? Of course, he would show up in X-Corp, which I don't need to talk about X-Corp, do I? Uh, it was just like, he's hey, he's the rich guy. He knows business. Let's... Put him in the background here and because it, I mean it makes sense for him to be there It's just they didn't use him He was just kind of there As Evan put it there He was just a, a piece of wallpaper He was only there because it made sense for him to be there And not much thought was given You know to, into fleshing out his role Or even giving him a role So yes I am definitely happy to see him Getting more of a uh, More of a spot in the current landscape here I'm also enjoying the competing teams of uh, the you know the X-Men and the Brotherhood up there because it seems like there is actually some thought put into it rather than just like hey here's a here are two teams they're you know competing for the affections of this planet or for the trust and respect of this planet we're actually seeing it we're actually it, you know it's one of those instances of a show don't tell where we're actually seeing how they're being received and how they're being perceived by the uh, the Iraqi, I, I I really quite like it, and I'm certainly looking forward to more. I think Red is definitely up there 
toward the very top of the current era X-Men books here. I think Immortal and X-Men Red are the... I hate to say they're the only must-buys, but uh, they might just be. There are some must-reads in this pile, but uh, as for ones that you really, I think you should have in your home... Well, like I said, the two that come to mind are Immortal and Red. But uh, thank you so much for listening and for writing in, Evan. Uh, Next up, we're going to hear from Jason Colby, my pod partner from the Weird Dose of X podcast over at the Weird Science Comics Podcasting Network. Over there, we just uh, concluded a not-so-quick and dirty look at the current state of the X-Men, as well as the Avengers and the Eternals, in preparation for the Judgment Day event, which we will be covering in real time. So definite spoiler alert if you are going to head over there and check that out. Uh, of course, I will be covering all of those issues you know, in my usual deep-divey, rambly sort of way here on X-Lapsed uh, in the you know, not-too-distant future when they come up in the rotation. They're, they're going to be a little bit uh, different from what we usually do, I assume, because I will already know <laughs> what's happening here. They will be a little bit novel in that, you know, I'm going to already know how everything turned out, which isn't completely ideal for what we do here on the show, but uh, hey, we uh, we don't have rules here anymore, so um, we're going we're gonna to let it slide. Or at least I will. Hopefully you will as well. Anyway, into Jason's message. He said, and he's talking about X-Force number 28. Jason says, Hey there, Chris. I'm too late to make with the funny preamble, so I'll just get right to the heart of the matter. I've been enjoying your coverage of the happenings of the hentai helmet in recent issues of Ben Percy's X-Force. In your discussion of issue 28, you talked about Quentin Quire, a.k.a. Kid Omega, trying out physically piloting various mindless, soulless husks as if they were fleshy mecha. Kind of gross, but also kind of a fun idea, and Kid Omega and his X-Force boss, Beast, aren't ones to let a little grossness and possible moral ickiness get in the way of a good time. We see several of these pink-tinged husks, and most of them make at least some kind of sense. Colossus? Sure. Wolverine? Absolutely. Domino? Yeah, who doesn't enjoy getting lucky? Beast? Okay, that one's kind of weird. Must be a furry thing. But one quality these characters have in common is that they all get their powers, those abilities Quentin would like to harness, from their DNA. From their X-genes. So it makes sense that those powers might also exist in these brain-dead husks. Huh, I wonder what Jason's getting at here. Hmm, let's let him get to it. That brings us to this issue's featured husk, the one on the cover, the one we see Quentin actually using, the Juggernaut, Kane Marco. Now, stop me if I'm telling you something you already know, but Kane Marco is not himself actually a mutant. As far as I know, and I very well may be several retcons behind, the Juggernaut gets his powers from the magical doodad called the Crimson Gem of Sidorak. That's true, that's true, Jason continues. I think you see where I'm going. Sure, Krakoa may have a copy of Kane's DNA, even though he ain't no mutant. And sure, the Five might use that DNA to do all the steps of the Resurrection Protocol up to, but not including, the bits where the mind and soul can get shoved in. But the husk that results should be... Plain old Kane Marco. Ordinary human, right? I don't see how the Juggernaut powers get in there at all. No gem, no Juggernaut. Is this just an error, or can you find a way to no-prize it for me? Well, you see, yes, I can no-prize it for you, but also, I, I like to commend you on actually taking this a step further than I did here. I didn't even consider the whole Sidorakian-ness of it. I just thought, he's a human, so how are they doing this? But definitely, your point is well taken and is 100% on the button there. No gem, no juggernaut. So, yeah, if we have a Kane Marco husk, 
no matter how we come about it, it should just be some lumbering clod. Just some dude, basically. No gem, no juggernaut. Now here's my half-assed attempt at no-prizing it. We did see in a recent issue of X-Men that uh, Laura was brought back, X-23, Wolverine, with her adamantium because Proteus was so out to lunch, he just thought that that was part of her power set. Perhaps Proteus just somehow manifested a... I don't know, an astral version of the Sidorak gem and put it in this husk? Now, that is, of course, a cop-out. It is very, very lazy. <laughs> but, I mean, a lot of no prizes are. I'm assuming that if... And, of course, this is assuming that this even gets mentioned ever again. Which, I mean, your guess is as good as mine. But if it uh, were to, or even if it's not, I guess we can maybe go with just the theory that uh, Proteus warped reality just right to manifest a uh, stand-in Sidorak gem. Now Jason wraps up with, Until D-Cell gets herself a team-up book co-starring the Energizer Bunny, Make Mine X-Lapsed. And uh, we haven't had a Make Mine X-Lapsed in a long time, and I've very much missed them. So thank you so very much for that, and for uh, listening and writing in, of course. But uh, that will do it for the mailbag, and uh, that'll do it for today's program here. If anybody out there would like to join the mailbag, or just uh, tell me... How tired you are of me uh, complaining that there are too many of these books. Um, Please, feel free to write in. I encourage you. I beg you. Please write in. You can find me several different ways. I'm on Twitter at Ace Comics. I'm on Instagram at 90sXmen. You can send an email to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. And uh, I should probably thank whoever it is out there who's using that email address to sign up for every single mailing list on the planet. Because, uh... Boy, you know, you open your mailbox and you have a bunch of messages. You get very excited that people actually give a crap. And then you see that it's just a bunch of sweepstakes that people signed you up for. And uh, that kind of brings you back to reality. I tell you, that is a (laughs) a massive blow to the soul. It's a lot. It's very disappointing when you see something like that. So, um, you know, if you have emails, if you have actual stuff to uh, talk about, definitely hit me up on that email. For blog posts and show notes, you can head to Chris's on InfiniteEarths.com. You can also check us out on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. And, uh, of course, the complete audio archives, ChrisandReggie.Podbean.com, available anywhere, yada, 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 yada. Now, before I step out of here, I did give a little bit of a fake-ass podcasting advice last episode, and I received a lot of nice feedback on that. Uh, uh, people seem to actually get something out of it, which... I tell you, shocked the hell out of me. <laughs> I didn't think it was anything worth uh, worth hearing or worth paying heed to. So I want to thank everybody who reached out to me about that as well. But I think that's going to do it for now. I want to thank you all so much for allowing me to waste about a half hour of your day. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. <laughs>